Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome back, my friends. Today, we have with us the founder of People Formula, 28-year veteran of the U.S. Federal Service, including the United States Naval Academy, United States Marine Corps, and 21-plus years of working counterintelligence secret agents, as well as the former head of the counterintelligence behavioral analysis program for the FBI. We have with us Robin Dreek. Robin, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty good. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's happy. I'm just happy to be here and sharing. Robin, you know, I was starting to think my life was super exciting. And here I am behind the computer screen typing a couple of things. And while you were out there trying to convince a Russian spy to switch sides, <laughs> so it, <laughs> my life doesn't look exciting anymore. <laughs> I think everyone's life is, is fascinating and exciting. You know, the one thing that I think every human being, if you start instilling a sense of curiosity about the people in the world around you, everyone becomes interesting. I think one of the greatest things that's happened in recent times is reality shows. And I am a reality show junkie. Um, and it's not all reality shows, but basically if you're suffering in some way uh, in Canada or in Alaska, I'm going to watch you on TV. I just like watching st stressed human conditions because they're just fascinating. I mean, who would have thought that a bunch of crabbers on the, you know, in the Bering Strait catching crab, doing basically the same show again and again and again would be fascinating. But human lives are really fascinating, and especially how we're all reacting right now. Um, during COVID. Um, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is pretty cool. Now that you mention it, uh, I, I don't watch too many um, reality TV shows. I try to actually to limit them just because I figure without them, I become more productive. But <laughs> yeah, you definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> so counterintelligence behavior analysis for the FBI, these are mm -hmm. the people that study spies behaviors. Is that right? Is one aspect of it, yeah. So, you know, there's plenty of behavioral units uh, in the FBI and in government themselves, law enforcement, you know, ever since, you know, the book Mindhunter came out years and years ago by a guy named Bob Douglas, you know, people have been fascinated. And, and human beings have always been fascinated by human behavior because we're always trying to figure out ourselves first and foremost. And then, you know, being able to figure out and understand those around us so we can really predict what people are going to do, avoid getting hurt, avoid being damaged by someone, uh, avoid being misled and mistreated. And so humans are always been a fact, uh, fascinated with human behavior. And so what my team does, though, um, as opposed to the, the folks that are the profilers, the criminal minds guys, they, they're profilers because they're looking for someone they don't know that committed a crime. So they use great research, great resources, and, and past experiences, create profiles of individuals that committed crimes um, that they're trying to solve. And so that's the one side. And a lot of times we're dealing with a lot of abnormal psychology because because those types of individuals that would contain as crimes generally are not acting within the normal parameters of human behavior, as opposed to my side. So my side, you know, in the world of recruiting spies, which 99% of the time, these are foreign diplomats that are, you know, in a undercover capacity at embassies and consulates around the world and very high education, uh, very great training. And they're really great human beings. You know, for the most part, they're just representing a different way of thought and thinking from whatever nation state they come from. 
And so my interaction and what we do to strategize is what, you know, whether it's to try to recruit one or trying to do a double agent operation to um, mislead them with bad information to hopefully, you know, keep them off the trail of, of, of really of, of military secrets or something like that. We're strategizing trust because that's what all human beings are seeking and craving every minute of the day. We're creating, we're trying to form these great relationships because genetically and biologically, we know if we don't belong to meaningful groups and organizations, and if we're not being valued by those groups and organizations, the likelihood of our survival is slim to none. So genetically and biologically, we're all coded to seek being valued and affiliated with others. And so all I was ever doing and still do is strategizing, how do I get someone to feel that way? And it cannot be manipulation. It cannot be uh, subterfuge or deception because it, human beings are actually really good at picking up when someone makes them feel creepy. <laughs> and generally it's those behaviors that people are doing that give people the creeps and you get the creeps. There is no trust, no trust, no relationship, no relationship. You have nothing. So wow. kind of a long answer, but that's what my team does and did. And that's what we all do really every day is we strategize. How do we have trust? So Robin, you mentioned the diplomatic spies and mm -hmm. I I've heard before about illegal spies. Mm -hmm. So is there such thing, I didn't know there was such thing as legal versus illegal spies. So is it legal to have, have a spy in the U.S.? <laughs> so, um, so here's how they're defined. So in general, if, uh, and this is why 99% of the intelligence officers, we'll call them, which are, you know, code word spies, but intelligence officers and intelligence collections officers, they're acting under diplomatic cover. In other words, they are legitimate credential diplomats, meaning that if they are caught doing something illegal in the host country because of our treaties that we have, they are immune hmm. from prosecution. And so it's, it's easier for their intelligence officers to hide under diplomatic cover, just like ours do, the CIA and the DIA and, and in Canada, CSIS, we worked with them all the time, you know, MI5 and MI6 in the UK, you know, I'm, it's, there's, it's what, that's what countries do. They need intelligence to make informed decisions for their state department and their foreign relations. And so a majority of them are under diplomatic cover so that they are protected if they're caught doing something they shouldn't do. And here's the other thing, too. They're actually conducting illegal activity very, very rarely. Um, open source collection of information, all it is is most what intelligence officers do is they collect information that are gaps of knowledge um, that their country has or in any particular sector. I mean, right now, what's going on in the world is, a, is I mean, I'm not working anymore, but I guarantee you that many countries have part of their intelligent collection requirements going out to their intelligence officers overseas, information about how that country is responding to COVID, what kind of protocols they have in place, what kind of restructuring, what kind of reopening programs, what kind of testing do they have? Because that's all intelligence and it's not illegal and it's not classified. It's proprietary in a lot of situations. You know, so a lot, that's why there's a lot of corporate espionage, you know, but there's really no difference. You know, there's information that people have that, that they spent a lot of time, money and resources on that people want to get for free. And that's where intelligence officers come in. They try to get it for free for their country. So that's the ones that are under um, covered, not necessarily legal, but they're called establishment um, people. Now, the ones that are illegal, what, what they are is they're actually doing exactly the same job. They're collecting information of intelligence gaps, but they're, they are regular citizens of that country in general. Um, you know, if you watch that show or seen it on TV, uh, The Americans, uh, it was on Netflix, yeah. you know, those, so these are Russian illegals that were, you know, inside the United States. And we had a bunch of them wrapped up in the 2000s 
Um, Anna Chapman was one of them, you know, that the world knew because she was one of the good looking Russian females that wasn't illegal. And so what it is, is they're regular people. So now if they get caught doing illegal things, you know, which is collecting, you know, secret information, classified information on behalf of a foreign power, that's illegal. And they can actually get prosecuted for that. So that's why they called illegals because they're here kind of legal, but what they're doing is illegal. So it's kind of just a term of art. Yeah, that's long cool. answer. I apologize. It's kind of dry stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. That's fascinating. That's one of the questions that that I had was, what can somebody, if they come from what we see in some movies, it would look like a normal family working a nine to five job. Mm-hmm. What could they possibly gain from being a spy on, you know, living what seems to be a normal life? Sure. There's all, as I said, it's all kinds of areas that are information knowledge gaps. Uh, how like local government information, I, you know, just how FEMA responds to situations, um, how our, our, you know, co-op, you know, basically restructuring of the government, should we go through situations like this, um, working inside industry or research institutes or universities, working on, infor- on, on programs that that country doesn't normally have people working on or have the resources to have people working on. All of these can be very, very normal situations. But, you know, like in my area alone, where I live in Virginia, one of the things I did before I retired, um, you know, my responsibility was to help protect about 600 clear defense contractors. A lot of these defense contractors had classified information and projects they're working on. And a lot of them were supplying the, the unclassified widget for that project. But just the knowledge that that widget's important, you know, that could be a piece of information an illegal could be working on or have access to. So it really does come down to what someone else places value on. Yeah. And it can be just about anything. I mean, I've saw, I saw amazing things. You, like I, I saw, you know, when I was in New York, one of the things that some of the intelligence organizations love to do is that they love sucking up um, Coast Guard radio traffic. It was open, open airways, but they were sucking up Coast Guard radio traffic because they wanted to understand shipping lanes. They wanted to understand timing of cargo ships. Uh, I don't know what they were doing with it, but that was part of an intelligence requirement. And nothing illegal and nothing hard to get, but there you go. Wow. So how does somebody even become a spy? Is this like, do you apply online for the job or <laughs> are they always recruited? <laughs> um, it really, and that depends on the country and the organization. So um, I, I know a lot of foreign countries, you know, they'll, they have top universities that they think are, are great feeders and feeder programs into organizations like, you know, the Russians do. Um, Chinese do us. Um, yes, ish is a good way. I mean, you can apply to, you know, just go to fbijobs.gov and then you apply for a job. Um, getting, but it was interesting because I get that asked that a lot of times, you know, cause you go through that, that background I have in my resume, which definitely screams hard charge in type a, but people ask me, so how did you get to be the chief of the behavioral analysis program for counterintelligence in the FBI? It sounds so cool. I said, well, <laughs> this is easy. I failed at everything I want to do. When I was in high school, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. It took me an extra year to get in, almost took me an extra year to get out. Uh, went there to be an aerospace engineer. I failed out of aerospace engineering because I did that because I wanted to become a Navy pilot. I wanted to become, after that, a test pilot, astronaut. You know, those are the things I wanted to do. But uh, all those things went sideways and I wound up, you know, getting, I wound up going Marine Corps instead of uh, Navy. And I had a recruiter from the FBI come down to Paris Island where I was a uh, company commander down there training recruits. And he said, we think, uh, F, uh, we think Marines, uh, former Marine officers make great FBI agents. I had no idea what the job was. I'd never heard of counterintelligence. I didn't even know I was going to work counterintelligence until I got assigned to New York city. So that was the first, you know, my first duty station inside the FBI was New York city as they're, um, from 97 till 2006 ish. 
Um, right there on 9-11, you know, I saw about eight people jump from the World Trade Center as our office about five blocks away. And I got assigned work in counterintelligence there. I tried to get on the squad. I had met some people at um, our firearms training that we do four times a year, and they were all former Marines. And they said, hey, you ought to try to get on our squad. And I said, really? Why? What are you doing? He goes, well, we work the Russian military intelligence. I go, what the heck is that? Hmm. And, they, and he goes, well, our job is to try to recruit these spies. And he says, everyone on the squad is former military. We all get along really well. We ought to try. And I literally tried. There was an opening and the rest became my, my legacy by mistake. So it was not the goal, but very, very pleased with it because it, it gave me it was a really neat thing. I got, I was afforded the opportunity to be, do something patriotic for my entire you know, government career, which was, um, meant a lot to me. And is the, the training that you get to become like the head of the counterintelligence behavior mm -hmm. analysis program, is that something like mind blowing as you're learning it? You're like, I can't believe this exists or is it really simple techniques? Um, it really, believe it or not, all these things in life, I call the elusive obvious. It's how do you, you know, like, how do you make a conversation about someone other than yourself? And that was like, it, so when I was in the Marine Corps, I failed majestically as a leader. You know, my first ranking, I was ranked last out of all these second lieutenants. And I remember going up to my rating officer, he's a major. And I go, all right, sir, I'm doing something wrong. What am I doing wrong? And he goes, well, you just need to be a better leader. And I said, all right, be a better leader. How do you do that? And he goes, well, you need to make it about everyone else, but yourself. Cause that's what leaders do. Leaders inspire people. And I go, all right, I kind of thought I was doing that. Tell me how. And he goes, I don't know, just figure it out and do it. So here's what he couldn't tell me. And this is what I figured out, you know, through years of on the job training and watching experts around me. I was literally surrounded by Jedi masters that had this art form of communication down. And it's very simple. How do you make a conversation about someone else other than yourself? And how do you get their brain through neuroscience to chemically reward them to, for engaging with you, releasing dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and bloodstream? It's simple. You seek the thoughts and opinions of others. That's the first thing. Because you only seek thoughts and opinions from people that you value and you want to affiliate with. Second, you talk in terms of their priorities, their needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations. Because here's a guarantee of human behavior. I can predict, and so can you, what every human being is going to do all the time. They're always going to act in terms of their own best interest, in terms of safety, security, and prosperity for themselves and their loved ones. All I have to do, and you have to do, is figure out what they think that is, and I now know what they're going to do. So I need to, one, to, you know, seek their thoughts and opinions. Two, talk in terms of those priorities. Three, validate the things they are saying and who they are without judging them. In other words, that's where that curiosity came in that you and I were talking about beforehand. You know, so demonstrate curiosity about a human being without judging them because everyone's got their own context of what is is. And finally, you give them choices. You know, if you do one of those four things and everything you say, that entire conversation shifts to, from yourself to them and their brain rewards you for it. And so what's really fun about this, I always say, so you know, think about the greatest, strongest, healthiest relationships you have in your life because here's another guarantee. No one listening to this and knowing this world is as successful and prosperous as you are without relationships. You didn't get there alone. It's, it took someone mentoring, teaching, guiding, inspiring. I don't care what it is. It takes relationships. Even if, you know, I know you work from home, but you don't work in a world solo. You interact with people. If you have a product and the only way to make a resource for yourself is to have someone want that product for a profit, it requires another human being. And so... And so that's it. How do you, and so how do you demonstrate that? So think about those greatest relationships you have in your life during your course of your last conversation, email or zoom talk. How often did you seek their thoughts and opinions, talk in terms of those priorities, validate them and, or give them choices. The best people in our lives, we do it roughly five to 10% of the time. And so can you imagine the power of it? If you can guarantee you everything you're saying or rating 
is completely saying one of those things. So that's all I did all the time and still do. So that's what the code of trust is about. That's what, you know, what I write about is my books are my manuals. I'm now not to be the self-centered narcissist I was born to be because this is how you get outside yourself, which we're genetically coded for. It's okay. Don't beat yourself up over it. But how do you purposefully make a life about other people and how do you be a resource for their success? That's how you do one of those four things and you strategize how to put that part of your conversation. You eliminate deception, you eliminate subterfuge and you have trust. Life's easy. So th that is so amazing because if you do those four, you can actually fix relationships. And this can be used for not just business relationships, but uh, personal relationships with, with family. There is, right? no there is no difference. You know, when I first started, to, you know, the first book I came out with is, uh, it's called, It's Not All About Me, an apropos title, uh, title for someone that was always about me. It was 10 techniques to quick report. Um, someone asked me, one of my friends has another podcast. Hey, Robin, can you fill in, you know, give me five, you know, five to 10 quick tips about how, how do you do quick report? And I never thought about it before, but I, I do what I, I call my, my, my new truck, my new car effect. And that is, and we've all experienced this. You buy a, a new vehicle and all of a sudden you start seeing that same make and model everywhere because you gave label and meaning to something. And when you give label and meaning to something, your mind sees it for, you know, and it's always there. And so I give label and meaning to behaviors. So that way you see them. And that's why the fog just clears. All these things have always been around you. It's why I always call these things the elusive obvious. You know, think about those great conversations. I mean, you're, you're a great interviewer and a great podcaster. And what do you do during the course of a podcast? You're seeking my thoughts and opinions. You're talking in terms of things that are important to me. You're not arguing with me. So that means you're validating me through curiosity. And then you, you know, if appropriate, you empower people with choices. So you're doing those four things constantly as a great interviewer, as a great podcaster. And so think about those same techniques applied to any situation. So I did it all for work, but what did I, all of a sudden I started realizing, well, who am I interacting with at work? Fathers, mothers, sisters, same people. There's no difference. You know, so there, I always call it the toughest sales job in the world is trying to sell, you know, my, my job was sales. I sold American patriotism to foreign spies. You know, that is a tough sales job. I'm selling yeah. a service, not even a product that's tangible. I'm selling a service to people that one, how often do you think a foreign spy wants to buy that product? Two, it was by treaty illegal for me to even initiate contact with them. And so I have to find, figure out how to inspire them to want to contact me. And really, you don't recruit spies. All you do is you figure out what their priorities are. And if their priorities is that a dying wish of a mother or grandfather or something was that their children didn't grow up in that kind of country, in that kind of regime, they want to maybe live in the United States or in the Western Hemisphere in some way, well, I have resources in terms of that because that's what all sales is. Sales is figuring out what the priorities of the other individual are, those needs, wants, dreams, and aspirations. In other words, how they see prosperity from their point of view and offering resources for it. It's really that simple. Figure out the priorities and offer resources. Bingo. Robin, what could what could you gain in this situation if you do successfully recruit, let's say, I don't know, a Russian spy, what would you or your country um, gain from it? I mean, that's that. Uh, sure. Um, well, there's there's lots and lots of things um, at the very, very surface level. You start understanding what that country has a knowledge gap in because they'll tell you their taskings mm -hmm. of information they're seeking. So you now can determine, do I need to harden the target and make it more difficult to get that information because we know they're, they're going after it? And you do that by sensitizing companies. Hey, listen, these people like this are going for the sensitive technology. Watch out. We'll partner with you on this. And so that's at a very surface level. At a very deep cataclysmic level, uh, if you find out that there's insider threats and penetrations inside of the government itself or in industry or in the military, 
some of these people might know. And so you, you'll detect leaks of information, whether it be through cyber or through personnel. And so, um, it's, it's, it can, it makes huge differences in the world, world of national security. And it's also between partners, you know, you being up in Canada, you know, one of the greatest things that great countries do together called the five eyes, you know, it's the United States, Canada, UK, New Zealand, and Australia, you know, very, very tight worked with all of those services routinely throughout my government career and post great human beings. And we share information a lot to help keep each other protected against people that don't have our best interests at heart. Talking about sharing information, um, does the FBI, CIA, do they get along and share information? Or is it like sometimes you see on TV that they could be rivals or the FBI? That's something else I want to ask you too. The FBI sometimes is seen as, on movies, they're portrayed as the bad guy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but I mean, we'll, we'll get to that first. So sure, are so the CIA and FBI friends, let's say? So it really depends on at what level you ask. Okay. Um, one of my great, great friends, he's a retired uh, CIA case officer. Um, he served overseas. Uh, he's on news a lot. His name's um, um, Dan, Dan Hoffman. And he was a CIA officer in New York City when I was an FBI agent in New York City. We did a lot together. And it was all prior to 9-11. You know, I remember we're up there prior to 9-11 working together after 9-11. And I remember all the hoopla coming around about how the FBI and the CIA aren't sharing information or working together. I'm like, I'm looking at him saying, who? Who are they talking about? We are. You know, so it's, it's like anything people can, if, if you can form great, strong, healthy relationships, then you get along fine. If you start getting ego and vanity and, and all these insecurities, human beings get in the way and, and that ensue turf wars, well, then no one's going to get along, you know, but if, if you keep the end goal in mind rather than the, the means goal, you know, the means goals are, are those very tangible, small steps to get to the end. Well, the end goal is really simple. Protect national security. That's it. And if you're all just acting in terms of that, well, then we all are on the same page, you know, so it kind of differs as maybe our methodologies, how to get there. But if you see, like all I ever did when I worked with other services was whether it's domestic for us or external for us is you, you shared each other's resources. You say, here, here's tools, techniques, and abilities we have and limitations that we have. What do you have and what are your capabilities and what limitations you have? And since we all have a common denominator of safety, security, and prosperity for ourselves and our families, how can we put all this together to further that? That's really it. So that's why it's really not that complicated, but people really like making it too complicated. <laughs> yes. So how about the movies? How did that ever make you feel when they make the FBI sound as the bad guy? And is there any I, truth to it when, when we see the FBI show up to a case and, okay, we'll take it from here? Uh, does it I've really never work been that part way? of it. <laughs> oh, no? Um, again, I've known some, I've known some fools that love throwing a badge around. I don't I didn't know many of them, but I knew one or two that used to, you know, really make locals very angry and ruin relationships. So it's fascinating. So when FBI generally shows up to, to situations and crime scenes and things like that, what you generally see, and even if, if you've been watching any TV and any news coverage, anytime there's an active shooter or anything like that, what you always, always see is the briefing always comes from the state and local, you know, jurisdiction first. And at every single junction, they're always supported by whatever federal assets they want. And so what generally happens in real life situations is a, a something happens, so, something horrendous, something cataclysmic or, or whatever. And it's always the first responders that show up, you know, state and locals that take control of a situation, take control of the crowd, you know, sterilize, whatever it is. And then people like, you know, other federal agencies like the FBI will show up. And what we do is generally what happens first is the, the, 
person in charge of our local office will call the sheriff, will call the state, the police, call whoever's in charge, say, hey, here we are. Here's our resources. How can we help you and how can we support you? That is 99% of the time that what, what's going on. Um, matter of fact, I've never personally known a situation where it didn't happen that way. It's very rare. Um, but in general, that's because, again, each of our organizations are so small and you cover such a large area that it takes a collaboration. And that's why you, you partner with everyone you can possibly partner with. Like in the FBI, we, we partner with, with all our other three-letter agencies in our own country, all the other you know, agencies around the world. And we partner with universities. We partner with um, corporate America because and there's only a couple hundred people that were doing what I do. You know, that's not nearly enough to do a full job. You know, it takes relationships with all these other people to have eyes everywhere, have ears everywhere, bring resources together when you need it, when you need to surge, you know, and so that's the way it, it works in real life. So it doesn't make me angry. I very rarely do I watch any shows like that because they're so inaccurate. <laughs> yes, that's, I mean, that's what happens when you are an expert at something and then you see it portrayed on TV, you find all, all the wrong things, all the defects, right? And I tried, and I tried with the uh, with the Americans. You know, as my wife watched the, the series. You know, and this is the uh, Russian illegals living here. I guess it was the '60s. Um, and I'm watching this because I actually know I was part of the case that you know happened in the, in the 2000s with us. Uh, my team was part of that case. There's a lot of people part of that case. Um, you know, with the 10 Russian illegals, and I know how we do what we do. And I'm watching this, and it was really it. it there's so there's some great truth in there but really Hollywoodized. Um, yeah, the, the first, and I'll tell you the first thing that got me, if, if anyone's seen this, it doesn't matter if you haven't, because I'll just explain it really quick. And that is they, they brought in this guy, uh, this agent that starts living next door to one of the Russian families. And they tout him as coming in and as an expert. And he had never worked counterintelligence before. He worked criminal matters. And yet they, everyone's now deferring and, and, and talking to him about working counterintelligence. And I can tell you, if you don't do this for a living, you do not have an expertise in this. <laughs> it is a different, different mindset than catching bank robbers. It is very, very different. Not better or worse, just different. So that was the first time I was like, that doesn't happen that way. <laughs> uh, so Robin, what do you think, how do you think is the spies right now in the U.S. can be measured in hundreds or thousands? Oh, hundreds, easy. Hundreds. And, oh, yeah, it, and, that's, and that's just one country. You know, is I mean, the U.S. the most wanted for spies to be at? Um, so I think the easiest way to answer that is, is talk in terms of Soviet Union and Russia, because mm -hmm. they have more deployed around the world than anyone, um, them and the Chinese. And so prior to the um, Cold War ending, what they, what they termed as their number one threat was United States and NATO allies. In other words, their number one targeting um, was that they would target the United States and all its NATO allies. After the Cold War ended, and Russia became the new country, it, they changed their wording. It went from number one threat to main enemy. United States and all its NATO allies. And so, yes, the United States always is at the top of people's list just because of our research and development and our economy and all that. But none of them will ever pass up an opportunity to take advantage of one of our NATO allies as well. All That's right. why we work so closely with all our NATO allies. <laughs> all right, so back to what you learned there. I know you're certified, and I didn't even know this existed, but you're certified practitioner in Myers-Briggs type indicator. Oh, right, the Myers-Briggs type indicator, right. And EQI2, which is the emotional intelligence. EQ, 
Doing, yep, emotional intelligence. So uh, what, what exactly is this? So those are, those are assessments, you know, behavioral assessment tools. Um, they're small parts of a whole of a human being. So when I first, when I first really started teaching at the counterintelligence training center and I wound up taking over the team, I had all these years of practical experience on the street as you know, think about this. If someone is really, really great at sales and been doing sales for 20 or 30 years and they had great mentors, great guides, and they got really great at sales, top salesmen of the company very easily. And all they do is, and they don't understand what they're doing. They just go out, play golf with some of their yeah. clients. They take them out to dinner when they're in town, yet they have the number one sales in the country. Then all of a sudden they decide to send this guy to school. And all of a sudden, he sits in a class and he's taking some, you know, organizational psych classes at the grad, grad level or they give him some behavioral assessment tools. And all of a sudden, the light bulb starts going off because all of a sudden, he's given those labels and meanings behind everything he's been living his entire life. And now everything's clear. And so that's what happened with me. I had all these years of experience. And all of a sudden, I start going through these assessments and getting certified to administer these assessments. And all those light bulbs started going off. And, and the deeper understanding, as my son calls it, he goes, all of a sudden, you start seeing the world like through the matrix. You, know, you don't see people anymore. You see, all, you see the streaming numbers <laughs> because mm -hmm. you see the code behind why people do what they do. And so, um, so yeah, again, certifications you know, in, in those areas... They're, they're fine. They're fun. They're entertaining. They're definitely a small part of the whole of trying to understand the other human being. Wow. Did you ever consider using your techniques for evil? And I mean, not a bad evil, like poker oh, player. Yeah. Do you ever Because if you can read, I, well, actually, you can read uh, people. One of my, one of my best friends, uh, his name is Joe Navarro. Uh, he is international nonverbal expert. As a matter of fact, one of the, his second book he ever wrote was actually read them and weep. Because uh, he's a nonverbal expert, so he used to teach um, poker players uh, tells at the tables and stuff. So, and I started. Uh, I was one of his disciples, you know, with nonverbal behavior because that's a, definitely a part of understanding if you're making that connection with someone else or not. And because of my job requirements, you know, he did lots and lots more interviews and interrogations than I ever did. I was more of the recruiting the human being side, and so I needed to focus more on all the words as well as the nonverbals. And so I had, a, so my, my focus of, of eyesight is just like, that's why zoom calls are fine for nonverbals because literally I see the same thing on a zoom call that I do when I'm listening to you, whatever, whether we're in person or not. So I've seen, there's no difference, but he focuses on all those things. So yeah, have I ever, no, um, I did used to play with people. I used to have courses, um, you know, training agents, how to develop rapport, how to do all these things. And we interacted with regular people in the public, you know, and, it's embarrassing because I don't believe in playing with human beings. It's very cruel and, uh, in, and just not ethical in my mind, but in order to understand everything I understand now, it was a part of my learning process. Uh, but no, never to take advantage of anyone. One of the things I do do is I do work with social engineers, um, to help protect people to, to know exactly what to look out for, because yes, using what I do for evil is very easy to elicit pin numbers, dates of birth, social security numbers, you know, without even asking a question. Um, because human beings, again, they're very predictable. They're, they just fit patterns. And so, yeah, so that's what, so when you get the malicious individuals out there, um, it's very easy for them to take advantage of people because what are they doing? They're developing limited trust in a, in a small time of, in a small time frame. And when you have trust, it's amazing what people will divulge accidentally. And so that's what these people are doing. They're strategizing and manipulating trust. So what are some of the ways that you could use to get people to trust you quicker? Because there are a lot of times you want to develop trust, not that you're going to use it for anything bad, but well, sure. you right? like first impressions. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there things that you would do to gain trust? 
Well, first of all, let's go back to the same four things again. Seeking thoughts and opinions of others, talking in terms of what's important to them, in terms of safety, yeah. security, and prosperity. And you can use the environment around them for that. Uh, validating them, their saying, their choices. Uh, in other words, instead of flattering someone by saying, hey, you look good in that shirt today, that, that can be creepy because that's just simple surface flattery. The way you validate someone is say, hey, listen, I'm trying to get something special for my kid's birthday coming up. Where did you get that? You know, because now I'm saying you make great choices. I want to make choices like yours. Help me understand where you got that. Instead of saying, hey, that shirt looks great on you. Because there's a level of depth that you can do to demonstrate I'm paying attention to you and, I, and you're amazing. And so that's when you're doing, again, those things. And then empowering with, empowering with choice. That uncovers a lot of things. Another, here's, here's a way you empower someone with choice. If, if, someone, if you're having a chat or a conversation with someone and all of a sudden you, you see that they, you know, you're a little too close and they, and they take it like a half step back from you, the way you empower them with choice is you take a full step back. In other words, you're accommodating them. You're being, you know, if they don't, aren't as comfortable, you accommodate. You empower them with choice about how close they want to come. I always end things with asking if I have a favor I want to ask someone to do or hope that they'll do. I'll say if that's something you're comfortable with because that's a nice, easy, easy soft way to empower with the choice. So, again, and it just comes down to using that great language and making it about the other person. Is it possible to turn it off? In your head, you can see the... Um the nonverbal behavior in people, right? So if you do meet somebody, is that turned on by default in your, in other words, almost like judging? Uh, is it possible to turn that off or not anymore? So turning off judging, uh, it's actually never even been turned on in a long time. Um, I had to get over that. And I, I'm, I'm the first, like I told you before, you look at that resume and background, I am one hardcore type A judgmental jerk from, you know, New York, upper New York. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I am, I am hardwired to judge the living heck out of people around me. And if you didn't roll like me, I thought you sucked. And because I, I'm an expert and I got a big mouth, I would generally tell you, um, because that was the way I grew up. Um, but if you're going to be in this line of work or any line of work where you're selling a product that no one wants to buy and you have that kind of attitude, you're going to fail majestically. And so I, it became down to years and years of muscle memory of learning how not to judge. And, and you replace judgment with curiosity. And that's the easiest thing to start doing. And because every time a conflict would break out somewhere in the world that involves the United States or even any of our allies, the first thing that the FBI gets tasked with is interviewing everyone from that country that's here. And when you're working in New York City, there's a lot of people from all over the world in New York. And so, I mean, every time we'd have even a, a slight little spur up, you know, you're interviewing every single Iraqi you could find, every single Iranian you could find, you know, Pakistani, India. I mean, I don't care where it is. You're interviewing everyone. And if you go in judging in any way, are they going to share with you? Are they going to open up? Are they going to trust you? No. So you, 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 I built muscle memory of never being surprised by what people say or by who they are. I mean, <laughs> probably one of the funniest stories I came up on one of the interviews I did a couple of weeks ago someone asked me what was one of the funniest uh, interview stories I had. And it was literally um, a, uh, his, one, of the, one of the intelligence officers happened to have an alternative um, sexual um, preference, preference yeah. for, for domination. And I wound up finding um, this, this place that he was really enjoying um, buying videos from. And I, on a fluke, I literally just left a, a business card, you know, an FBI business card in their mailbox you know, at their business saying, Hey, you know, I work national security. No one's in trouble. I'd be curious if you'd be willing to have a conversation. Now I was curious about figuring out, all right, because what's my job, figure out the priorities of the Russians to see if I have things that are in line. And again, this is a, it's, Hey, if he says it's a priority, I'm just curious what was going on. And so here I am at a Starbucks in, 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 uh, 
in Manhattan, and in walks the uh, dom- the head dominatrix uh, with her with her goth female on a leash, um, in all kinds of um, leather things with things bulging out, and 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 their lawyer was uh, wearing um, big high leather biker boots and a biker jacket, and it was the funniest thing I saw. <laughs> and I here I'm wearing a suit, and I remember just looking at them and saying, "Hey, well, thanks very much for coming." Um, so. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make small talk about, yeah. you know, talking in terms of their priorities. I said, so do you make your own movies or are you kind of just resellers? <laughs> and they said, oh, we, fact, she goes, oh, well, we make all our own. Matter of fact, she's one of our newest actresses. And this was the girl on the leash. I go, hey, good for you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that wow. was, um, but was, here's what was great. They were no different. I mean, they just had different choices of, of career paths. I mean, very nice, very accommodating, very friendly, willing to help out. It was, that's what I mean. When you get over um, your own context of how you see the world because of your optic and you start having curiosity about others, um, it becomes much easier to stop judging. Yes, absolutely. I know that, I think it was Einstein that said, you can't judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree. And <laughs> yes. Because everybody is great at something. And normally when we're judging people, we're judging them only for the things that they're not great at. Right. That is such a great quote and it's such a great thing to remember. People always ask, you know, hey, what, what, what are one or two things I could start doing right now to start changing how I see the world and how I interact and be more healthy? And I said, it's easy. Stop figuring out what people are doing wrong. I can guarantee you, you know, I've done, I've studied people and I've done so many investigations. Every single one of us is working on something. We all have an insecurity and some of us hide it better than others, but we all have insecurities. We're all, we're all shamed about something we've done in our lives. Stop trying to focus on that and let go of it. Because here's another guarantee. So we all have greatness, like you said. Figure out what the greatness is. Take time, whether it's personal or professional, figure out their greatness and take note of it. And the second thing to start doing is start figuring out what's important to them. What are their priorities? And how are you going to make their job and their life easier in terms of those priorities? That's where relationships really start. Wow. So, Robin, tell me something. Is it possible? Is it in the works? Or does it already exist a way that people can be trained by you? Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, so I did a lot of live in-person uh, trainings before uh, this all happened. And uh, I had online courses that I was tinkering with. So I do have two out right now. So my best recommendation I have um, for a lot of organizations I've been working with, is because a lot of times people are not quite sure, do I do a webinar? How do I do this? And so what I recommend is this. I have two courses out right now with a third on the way. Uh, first one is... Uh, you know, 10 techniques to quick rapport based on the first book. Second one is the code of trust. You know, these five techniques we've been talking about how to inspire trust in others. Yeah. And the last one that should be out in a couple of weeks is sizing people up. And those are six signs for predicting behavior of others. What I always recommend is if you want to really get in depth of this one, uh, subscribe to my newsletter because I, I really, I've been on a lot of podcasts as well. Those are on my website. You'll be on my website. I'm excited to have um, this added. And so Take the courses if you want, contact me, and then I always say, then we should do a one-hour uh, you know, one session afterwards so you can ask questions, do a deep dive, make it specific for you. Um, so that's probably the easiest way. Oh, and so you go to the website, basically. It's peopleformula.com, all one word, peopleformula. Perfect. I'll have that on the show notes and peopleformula.com. There you go. I'll have that on the show notes for everybody to check out. Thank and you. where else do you want people to find you if they are interested in learning more? So website's the main one. I'm also on Twitter um, and I'm on LinkedIn. I, I do a decent amount on LinkedIn as well. Uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, how much I've been doing more since uh, we've all been in lockdown communicating wise. But I say the easiest way, anytime I do get a new resource that I put out there, I do add it to my website. Uh, it's a pretty in-depth one. I try, you know, like new videos, uh, at least me given, like I'm going to be coming up with these shorts uh, pretty soon. 
so I'm going to put those out in my email list as well as on my YouTube channel and as well as on the website. So as I come up with, you know, seeing things in the world about how to survive and how to do better. And, and basically right now, how do you feel connected and don't feel disconnected when we're all kind of social distance around the world right now? That's what I really like to focus on because here's a great, here's a great thing right now. Nothing has really changed in the way of what we require, need, and can also deliver as human beings. Again, we are all seeking to be, we're seeking the thoughts and opinions of others, talk in terms of priorities, validate and giving them choices. You can do this via Zoom, in a text, or in person. It makes no difference. Our brains still require that. And we can still give that gift to others. And actually, when it comes to leading teams, that's exactly the way you want to lead teams. Awesome. I got I to gotta keep a post-it with all of those written down. And I'm going to start enforcing them as of right now. It's a great thing to do. I do too. That's why my, my wife generally holds up my books in front of my face at least once a week and says, hey, I got something good for you to read. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, they're my manuals as well. A, a great person I worked with at Quantico years ago, she was a master educator. And when I first came out with that first book, it's called, you know, it's the title being, it's not all about me. And she said, only you could have written that book. And I go, why? And she goes, because you really needed this book. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm yes, gonna, I did. I'm going to check it out. That's your first one, right? All about me. Yeah. It's all about me. Yep. That's a, it's a quick, easy read on download on Kindle. Um, 25,000 words. You get through in a couple hours. It's a great primer for all that comes later is a good way I put it. Okay. And then I'll have those also on the show notes. It's all about me. Number two was the code of trust. And then the third sizing people up. These right. names are fantastic, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> and, and big thing is, you know, when you, see, when you see my background, you see the names of these books, you're expecting some master manipulation coming in here. And what you see throughout them all is a lot of humility, a lot of self-deprecating stories about how not to be that moron, you know, about how do you actually instill great positive trust with relationships without deception, without subterfuge. In other words, a good, sincere, genuine life that you can lead and uh, be a part of others as well. I can't wait. To, I can't wait to, to read those. and. Uh... I'm also going to check out your your training because this is something fascinating. I mean, Robin, we could talk for hours. There's so many more things I want to ask you about the, the FBI and the, the We'll just have to do another one. <laughs> well, I guess we'll have to. <laughs> Robin, thank you so much. I mean, this was amazing, and I really can't wait to do it, do another one. I thank you, and I can't I can't thank you enough for having me on and reaching out to me as well. So you be safe, and I'll uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you.